Hello and welcome to the Busyness Podcast. My name is Emily Austin. I'm the founder and CEO of a London-based PR agency called Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses and have been fortunate enough in my 13-year career to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my business when I was 22 years old, fresh out of university. Since that time, the world has got louder. Our expectations have become greater and our lives have become busier. Fobbing friends off with the stock answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm so busy, is an attempt to compel, conflate and convince. But when did being too busy become a mark of status? Why is the goal to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? Are we setting unrealistic expectations for future entrepreneurs and business owners by encouraging them that a maniacal approach to diarising is the standard? This podcast aims to give you a realistic, detailed insight into the honest stories, the failures, the triumphs, the intricacies, the mistakes, the comebacks, the fuck-ups from those set to make their mark, the leaders, movers and shakers, trailblazers and game changers. We cover imposter syndrome, hiring and firing, call-out culture, anxiety, global growth, daily routines and knowing when to quit, choosing the best in the busyness to help you cut through the noise and optimise your success. Hello and welcome to episode five. This week, I get the pleasure of chatting to Whitney Hawkins, founder of Flowerbox, a flower delivery service sourcing the freshest flowers direct from the growers, delivering them right to your front door. Dissatisfied by the clunky, time-consuming offering from florists and flower markets, Whitney saw an opportunity to streamline the experience, creating a premium multi-million pound business that delivers flowers to some of the most influential people across the world. After 20 years working as the right-hand woman to Tom Ford, Whitney leveraged her hard-earned relationships to ensure she had the best advice ahead of her launch. Her fashion pals were so excited by the idea, they even invested in the business. We talked about how to create something meaningful and lasting, what sacrifice in business really means, how to hire and empower a great team, why everyone should have a 10-year plan, how to grow a business into global markets, whilst also raising children, and of course, how COVID has impacted the business. I loved chatting to Whitney, and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. I guess, sort of to kick off, I wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about your career before you started the business and how you ended up, uh, is it 2015, starting the company? It is. Um, so I started my career working for Tom Ford at Gucci. I was his PA straight out of school. I graduated with a degree in French literature from Columbia University in New York, and I was going to move to Paris. I was going to work in fashion. I was going to smoke a lot of cigarettes and wear black and be really fabulous. Uh, I wanted to work at French Vogue, but French Vogue did not hire me. Um, I don't know why not, but I like the luckiest break in the entire world was I got this job working for Tom. Um, Obviously, my my career dream wasn't to be a celebrity fashion designer's PA at all. Uh, But 
it was such an amazing opportunity. I mean, uh, Gucci was also, it was like the ultimate Gucci moment. Like in, it was it in the fashion world. So it was, it was the luckiest break. And then, you know, I just worked really, really, really hard. I just literally worked my way up that ladder every day, every night. There was a point where, you know, Tom was like, he'd come in the office at like 7.30 in the morning for something, like he needed to catch up on something. He's like, what are you doing here? I mean, I was never not there. And so in that way, I became indispensable to him. So as he left Gucci, he asked me to, to um, leave with him and, and head up his communications. So I, I was the senior vice president of communications at Tom Ford and helped him grow that from sort of eyewear to fragrance to then women's wear after, no, men's wear first, then women's wear. So it was a really great masterclass in how to build a brand literally from the ground up, from a pair of sunglasses to, you know, a huge globally recognized brand. And then I, I guess, you know, I, I, in my head, you know, Tom always said, it's so important to have a 10 year plan. Like you should always have a 10 year plan. Everyone should have a 10 year plan. And that sort of resonated with me a lot. And in my twenties, my 10 year plan was very much work, 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 work at all costs, just work and sort of build my career. Then in my thirties, I, it was very important for me to have a family. So I had children while also, you know, still keeping my career as a priority. And then I was turning 40. I was pregnant with my third child. I was like in the back of my head, I was like, is my 10 year plan really to be like seating editors at a fashion show? And they were, they weren't even editors at this point. They were sort of turning into bloggers and they were all like sort of half my age and just quite rude. And then I was like there, I'd be like, Oh, is Tom in a good mood? Is Tom in a bad mood? Can I go get him a Diet Coke? And I was just like, am I going to be 50 years old doing this and being like, can I go to my children's football game? So it was sort of that. And then I had this idea as a working mom, I was buying everything in my life online. I was buying my clothes online. I was buying my beauty online. I was buying my farmed organic groceries online. However, if I wanted to buy flowers and I didn't want like a bouquet and I didn't want an arrangement, I just wanted to have 10 hydrangea on a side table because I was having friends over for dinner or I wanted 20 peonies on, on my kitchen counter. Uh, but I didn't want to buy, I wanted a certain quality of flowers, but I didn't want to go and spend, you know, hundreds of pounds at a florist. So I would go to the Covent Garden flower market. There I was in stilettos and a pencil skirt because I had Tom in the office at nine in the morning. And I was like, how come there's no solution for this? Just a simple, fuss-free, slick, easy, not again, not a bouquet. <laughs> I just wanted to buy what I could buy at the market um, from, buy it online. So I think the, the confluence of all of those events happening simultaneously, turning 40, being pregnant, having this idea, it was one of those now or never moments that... I could have easily stayed where I was and been super happy for the rest of my life, probably actually happier and more comfortable than not happier, but definitely more comfortable than I am now uh, with a lot more money, a lot better situation. Uh, but, you know, it was one of those I, I had to do it. Well, there's a big difference as well, I think, between, you know, I started my business at 22 and there's a very big difference between being 22 having nothing to lose, everything to gain, your 20s ahead of you. And if if not, if you fuck it up, you're sort of 25 and very employable. It's a very different thing to be, you know, have two children, one on the way, be 40, have a family or a mortgage or whatever the sort of commitments are and decide to give up what is a lot of stability to do that. Was it... 
what was the tipping point for you when you decided to say, I'm actually handing in my notice? Had you started prepping the business and sort of there was an overlap or did you leave and go, I'm going to focus all my attention on this? No, that's a great question. And I uh, literally, you know, I had the best job in the world. I couldn't, I, there's no way I could have gone and gotten a better job because I was, I wanted to work in fashion. I was like at the top of my game working for the best person. I couldn't imagine going doing like, you know, communications for someone else. It was like, I had the best gig. So the tipping point was, so I started flower box on the side as sort of a side hustle because I was so scared. I was so scared that I was jacking in 20 years of, of, you know, work and relationships and, and relationship with Tom. Also, my husband's the senior vice president of menswear at Tom Ford and has been now for 25 years. So I had this amazing opportunity to work with my husband. We had grown up together. We met at Gucci. So I was throwing away a lot more than just a job. I was throwing away my entire life. Tom's godfather to my kids. It was like a big um, relationship sort of rupture. But I started Flowerbox on the side and I couldn't really talk about it, but I just saw it was like growing by itself. And I couldn't talk about it. Of course, I talked to the people I knew about it, but I couldn't talk about it to the press because I, you know, I, I had a job and I couldn't. Yeah. Um, and then Natalie Massonet, who's a, a friend and she's an investor in Flowerbox, uh, the founder of Net-A-Porte, she's like, you've got to go do this. She's like, like there's only and there's only one way this is actually going to turn into something it's if you leave and do this and in my head of course I knew that but having the baby was like I'm not going back so it was after I had my baby and you know I was meant to go back after like two months and I sent Tom an email and said can we meet and he just wrote back uh-oh because I've never I'd never asked him for a meeting in my entire life I never because I was the least demanding employee in the world I love all like you know, all these millennials that always want to meet and talk. I never wanted to meet and talk. I just did my job. I worked really hard. This um, is a really interesting, I was going to ask you earlier when you said you just had this relentless commitment, certainly throughout your career, but particularly in your twenties, it was a very conscious application to your job. You know, do you think, and, and my, my early experiences of PR were more in fashion and it was like, you had sort of garment bags cutting into your shoulders as you had to trek across. To, I mean, it's not glamorous. And you know, people make you, uh, you know, you're like licking the envelopes for some fabulous party that you're obviously not going to be allowed to go to. And you just have to thank them for the opportunity, even though you probably won't get a job at the end of it. And it is, it, it you know, there was a kind of brutality, which obviously there should be a balance, right? Like, you know, I think it's important that we pay people what we should pay them, all those kind of things, fine. But actually that grit and resistance, re resilience and determination that's sort of, embedded into you when you do something where you really have to work and graph. Do you think some of that has now disappeared when you look at sort of either younger employees or people you work with within your business? Yes. And back to what you said, I mean, I remember standing in heels with a clipboard in the snow practically for like five hours, checking people into a party I couldn't go to or dinner. You know, that was my entire life. I think my entire twenties, but I, I do think you know, you put the time in and you work really hard and then the reward comes. But I do think there is a, definitely a sense of entitlement with uh, younger people today of what what's work going to give to me. And I was all about what am I going to do for this job? Right. I didn't think I, I felt lucky to be there. I think right. I think working for working for the hottest brand for the hottest person at the hottest time also sort of just automatically implied that, that I was super lucky to be there because I knew that any single girl who wanted to work in fashion would have killed for my job. So I think that added to my grit and, and hustle, but the people I hire now, and I've hired, um, a team of, of, 
sort of millennial, you know, people in their twenties, early thirties, they all have grit and they all have hustle. And it's very clear when I interview them that that's like, <laughs> they want to work hard, come to flower box. If they don't want to work hard, like this isn't the right place. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, it's interesting when people talk about the kind of snowflake generation. And I think f- from my experience, certainly I, I don't ever remember being taught anything specifically. It was always like, you have an opportunity to learn, but that's kind of on you rather than sort of mentoring, certainly, certainly in, in my early career. Um, the job that you had for 19, 20 years, did you travel around the world? Because your business now is a global business. Um, was there exposure to other territories that really helped when you were launching this company? Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. So being close to Tom and being like Tom's right hand meant that everywhere he was, I was. So I had an apartment in Milan, an apartment in Paris, an apartment in London. I was like 24 years old. I would, you know, I was, we were in New York nonstop, shot all the ad campaigns for Gucci in Saint Laurent in LA. So there, it was a super global position and it was so fun because I was in my twenties. I was unattached at that point. I had no kids. Tom was the love of my life. Um, and it was as glamorous as you can imagine. Um, and it also did give me exposure to incredible people, but I think exposure to incredible people is one thing. I think you have to invest in those relationships and you have to work at those relationships and build those relationships. And it wasn't because I was like close to Tom that these people became my friends. They became my friends because they became my genuine friends. So I think putting time in is something that is also underrated. Uh, And that's not something, you know, had I started Flowerbox 15 years ago, I wouldn't have the same relationships I have now. And I wouldn't have been able, you know, those people wouldn't have supported me the way they have uh, because it's a great idea, but also because they believe in me and they've all gotten really behind me. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. There's a, um, there's no sort of fast track to having, having a, a growing contact book. You've got to, you know, you hope that when you're so devoted to your career, that the people that you work with, you can form friendships with and, or, you know, whether it's clients or or people in, in similar industries. But as you say, there has to be value in those relationships outside of, you know, whether you can get them into a party or whether they can get you a freebie. And I think that the the testament to that is that you've been supported. You mentioned that Natalie as a friend is also an investor. You know, that's not her doing you a favor. That's her having enough exposure to you to know that uh, it's really viable. She, you know, she might take a look at it because she knows you, but she ain't going to put her money into it if she doesn't think, you know, it's going to, it's going to be a viable investment. Exactly. And I think the same with editors, you know, all of those editors, all of those lunches, all of those dinners, and they did become genuine friends. But I think that authenticity is something that keeps coming back. It's not like about networking. It's not about like, it's about really investing in people too. Um, and, and they invest back in you. So we mentioned that you started the business in 2015. We've seen in the last couple of years, um, I guess an evolution of some categories that are quite dusty. So we've seen it with um, paint and interiors, brands like Lick. We've seen it in oral hygiene with sort of toothpaste and electronics. We've seen it in probably fem care as an obvious choice with tampons and other products. Flowers, you mentioned at the beginning that bouquets were sort of like the only option, particularly in this space. What was happening in the space before you launched? Was it was it branded? Was it marketed well? Or was it sort of occasion-led and quite dusty as a category? 
Yeah. So the whole, uh, flor- like the whole floral industry, I think th- the way traditional florists work is just a flawed business model. And there's a reason no florist has ever made a lot of money in the history of floristry. I mean, it's beautiful and noble and I'm not knocking it, but I didn't leave my career to, to become a florist. That was never the goal. And people are like, did you always want to be a florist? I'm like, no. And more than ever now, I don't want to be a florist. Um, but the, the traditional model whereby you have bricks and mortar store, you get flowers in, half of the flowers go to waste because you don't sell them. It's actually 60% is is shrink. So you're paying for the waste. You're paying for like store staff. You're paying for rent. You're paying for all of these things that make, make it non-viable because the margins on flowers aren't enormous in the first place. What we did was we took out the storefront, like took out those costs, took out the shrink because we only order, we cut to order what you order. So you pay us, then we buy on your behalf. We have zero stock. Like if you go in our warehouse now, there's same day stock and that's it. We don't have, we don't keep stock at all. So we've cut out that cost of waste. We've cut out the cost of having florists, you know, standing around in an empty store all day. So we've, we've really disrupted the the business model. and. Uh, stripped out a lot of the cost and we've been able to pass that on to our consumers. The way florists work traditionally too, like when you order a bouquet, you're on the phone, which I found super annoying, always spelling out the name, spelling out the note card. Um, And you're like, do you have, like, I want to send white panties. And they're like, okay. And then you see a gift, you see what you actually sent. And it's like a mix of whatever they actually had in in the flower shop. And the reason they did that is because of the business model of a florist. They have flowers in there that they need to sell. So obviously they're going to put together whatever looks okay. Um, and it's not necessarily what you asked for. So I was constantly just disappointed. Every time I sent flowers, I'd spend a hundred quid send my mother-in-law flowers for mother's day. I was like, that's just ugly. I knew they were going to be ugly. I'd send them anyway. Mm -hmm. So I was like, why don't we create something that's consistently beautiful? You know, you go to Gucci in London, in Paris, in Tokyo, in Milan, you're getting the same sort of branded experience. You're getting the same tissue paper. You're getting the same ribbon. You're getting the same store staff wearing the same uniform, probably the same fragrance. So you're getting this consistency of a branded experience. Yet with flowers, it was always like, oh, I hope those look nice, but pretty often like disappointing. So I just wanted to create a really slick, really beautiful, not fussy, not expensive, just a really beautiful, chic, consistent um, flower brand. So luckily, I, I feel like we, you know, when when I speak to investors, they're like, "What's what's your goal?" I'm like, "To create the first global flower brand," which we have now done. There's still a lot more to do, but you go to flower box in New York, in LA, in London, in Paris, in you know Berlin, you're getting the same exact quality branded experience, um, same packaging, same you know, you're buying into the dream. Hmm. Does that mean a lot of your investment in the early stages was on operational parts of the business? Has that yeah, been a hundred percent? And that's what we're really focusing on now. I think we've created a very beautiful brand and it's a brand that resonates and clearly even with our launch in the US, you know, eight months ago, we're now doing year four UK numbers. So it's really landed in the US. But I think that's yeah. an attest like an testament a testament to the strength of the brand. But what we've been doing for the past sort of year and a half is really building out the operation and the logistics because at the end of the day we're like a logistics company for perishable goods mm. which is not my how, strength still isn't how, I, mean, I'm how, lot, not, I mean it's not the most fun bit of the job either I don't think um how long before launching into new territories would you plan like I know you know the business is still young but certainly for the, the amazing numbers and growth that you've seen but 
how what is the sort of run up into I mean Europe obviously being different to to the US but but typically how long would you sort of plan those launches before you occupy a new territory well they're weak <laughs> yeah I'm like I'm the New York I I because I'm just really ambitious with this and I also think that like the speed at which we move will determine the success so New York I literally I announced that there was this huge piece in the New York Times full page and it was like in February and they said here's the chance you can do it in February or not like it's not like you can push it for your launch and so I was like we're doing it so I just announced we were launching in May it was Mother's Day in the US in May I just said we were launching in May and the team was like I walked in the office and they're like what I'm like we're gonna do this guys it's now or never same thing with during COVID we it was April last year and I spoke to my COO who's amazing and I said, look, we've got to launch the East Coast right now, right now. The moment is right now. If we don't launch it right now, then there's no point. Because it was in the lead up to US Mother's Day. It was, the whole world was closed. I'm like, the opportunity is right now. And it was the best thing we've ever done. But it was like, it was nail biting. And it was like, um, I'm, I'm, I'm so lucky I have a partner in my COO that just is amazing at making stuff happen because he gets the value in what I'm saying. Um, he would probably do it slower than I, than I, I want to. And then we launched the West coast in October last year, again, during COVID hired the whole team remotely, found the warehouse remotely, did all of it remotely. And again, it was the, the second best probably thing we've ever done. I mean, there's nothing quite like a deadline, is there? Like once no. you say it, once you no. once you post it online, it's happening. I'm I'm interested as well, and I I can't let you get away with that. Just glossing over, we launched an entire new you know territory plus a warehouse plus team. You know, what was that actually like in terms of like blood pressure and late nights? You know, not only time zones, but that is an enormous task. And I guess the people who are starting or running businesses. You know, is there a practical piece of advice, which is like, you just have to write a very clear list of what needs to be done and just get on with it? Because that is quite an enormous task amongst also running a, a business here and dealing with the fallout of COVID and sort of personally changing to what was a very restrictive way of living. So what was that actually like sort of practically? And then throw some like homeschooling into it too. Cause I had three kids at home, which was like, that was actually the most stressful part. Cause I was really worried about them too, on top of me not being present and me, mm -hmm. you know, free, you know, focusing on my business. I was, they were downstairs. Like, I'm like, what are they doing? Are they even, are they going to like be damaged for life out of this? Um, Watching TV, like from nine till nine. Like, uh, yeah, not even like TikTok. It's even worse now. TV would be great if they could watch a show for 30 minutes, but their attention span is so bad now. They're like, if it's not 30 seconds, they, they're lost. Um, I'm kidding. My kids are absolutely amazing. And they really took the responsibility on themselves. I said, this is your, this is on you. Like my 13 year old today and 10 year old, I was like, it's your failure, or your success. It's up to you. And I just left them to it and they nailed it. They did great. So, but it was, I, again, I didn't know that at the time. So in hindsight, they're fine, but I, I was so worried about them, but I think, oh, man, hire a great team. I've got the best team. As I said, our COO who's based in New York, we have an awesome global head of ops. And I, I, I did not do it all by myself, I think. Mm. And I could not have done it all by myself. So uh, and hire a great team, empower the great team to go and do what they do really well. I'm very good at, at the long-term vision. I'm very good at the brand. I'm very good at the communication. I'm very good at, at a lot of things, but like, you know, I'm, I'm not, excellent at the operation. I'm not excellent at the logistics. Um, I'm learning a lot, but I think hire people that are better than you are at those things, at things that you're not good at. 
is probably the best advice. But again, it's easier for me to say that now when we have some money and some success and we can actually hire great people because Flowerbox is, you know, it's on the map and people are excited by it. But it was a lot harder for me to hire excellent people two or three years ago. So I hired the best I could and they aren't the people that are here now. So I think hire the best people you can and then accept in your mind that there are certain people that are A to B people. And there's certain people, you know, I think almost actually now, just now, the entire A, A to B team, except for two people are gone. And now we have the B to C team. And maybe the B to C team is going to be the all the way team or maybe not. But I think you just have to be forgiving that you didn't make the wrong hires. They were the right hires at the time. But, um, mm. you know. And as businesses evolve, right, like the, the needs of the business change. And, and as you say, it's totally fine to hire people knowing that they've got a very specific um, c- commitment to the business for a period of time. And obviously you, you want everyone to be there forever, but you have to have a culture that demands the best because otherwise you're running solo. And that's a really, really tough place to be. Yeah. And that's been really hard for me. To, uh, that's been sort of felt like my biggest failures. And I, I've, I've learned now at this point that it's not um, a failure if, some, if it doesn't work out. But, you know, back to what you just said, that it was the right thing at the right time and it's not the right thing anymore. But obviously Did it does, use- especially when you invest in personal relationships and we work so closely and so intensely together that it does mm-hmm. feel disappointing when it doesn't work out. For sure. Did you use recruiters or were you like on LinkedIn, getting referrals, talking to people? No, we didn't have money for recruit, you know, not like now finally we can pay great recruiters to bring us great people. But at that point, no, it was like LinkedIn, word of mouth. Um, and yeah, figuring it you out. Know, you're also way. getting people to come to like a warehouse in Acton. It's hardly like a glamorous sell. They really have to buy into the dream and believe in the dream. You know, the, the exciting thing is our results are so tangible and so real and so palpable and everything we're doing is working so well that, that I think the team's energized by that, even though I can't offer like a glamorous office and lots of mm. fabulous perks. Yeah. The, it's the, it's the vision piece for sure. Um, you mentioned about the uh, traditional um, model of a florist accounting for a lot of waste. You So you mentioned 60%. Is sustainability an incredibly, you know, aside from the cost implications for the business, is sustainability a very important part of the business that you're building in an industry that is um, handling perishable goods and also used to quite a large margin of waste? Hugely important. And that's been like a driver for everything that we're doing. You know, we have like composting of all green waste in all of our warehouses, which again is at like a great expense, but it's something that's super important. We compost or repurpose all of our events, flowers and all of our um, sort of anything from our contracts. We also have fully, um, we have like compostable flower food. We have fully recyclable packaging, which like no florist ever, you know, there's that traditional sort of cellophane with the, with the, so all of our packaging is recyclable. And we're working on on completely biodegradable uh, for next year, but it's 100% at the core of what we're doing now. We finally have um, had the resource to hire a flower buyer internally that you know on our behalf who can now make sure we're sourcing from all of the right farms. We're doing a big piece on locally grown, so we have we're about to launch all of these amazing British uh, spring uh, spring and summer flowers, all locally grown. We're doing the same thing in LA and in New York. 
So really supporting local farmers. So it's a huge, huge, huge part. It's first of all, it's really important to me as a person, but it's also a huge part of our, our business model and an investment that we see 100% worth making. For people who are starting businesses now or, or at the earlier stages, it's very difficult to navigate through the multiple different channels through which we can push products, but also being cause-led, right? So with success comes more profit margin, hopefully, and more choice to be able to invest in um, more sustainable practices in a business. I guess the first part of the question being, do you have any advice for people who are at the start who are trying to figure out how to prioritize um, what it is that they need to make sure uh, the business is doing from a kind of sustainable, ethical, inclusivity perspective? Because it, is it correct to say that it's sort of impractical to expect people to be able to do everything right at the beginning when they're also trying to start and run a business? A hundred percent. I think, first of all, don't, you can't do everything. And I still can't do everything, which upsets me, but do what you can. You know, even if it's as much as like everyone in the office turning, well, when we were in an office, turning off computers, turning off lights, um, composting and recycling. If just start small and make sure it's one of the sort of pillars of of your culture, and so that everyone's acting for the same cause. I mean, we finally now are able. We have all electric vans, but that was something it took us four years. And I wanted it from the beginning. I researched electric vans at the beginning. They were super expensive. They they could only go sort of twenty five miles on an electric charge. So it just didn't make any sense. But now finally we've gotten there. So I think be patient with yourself, but keep. Don't become complacent. Uh, I also think that sustainable companies or businesses with sustainability as a a part of, as a pillar of what they're doing are the businesses that are going to survive. So prioritize it, even if it means not, you know, losing some margin, we lose margin on it, but it's so important and it's so important to our customers and it's going to become increasingly important to our customers, especially because we're a product that people don't need. Um, I, I could argue we do, but um, it's a it's a product that's not a hundred percent necessary. So if you're going to buy it, you need to feel good about buying it and feel good about how you're buying it and who you're buying it from. Yeah, and I guess it's really hard to implement that retrospectively, right? Like you want to bake it into, as you said, make it a really core pillar of, of the business from the beginning because it's very difficult once you're ten years old to look back and yeah. say, okay, well now we'll start, you know, being more sustainable. Yeah, but you look at like M&S who like still doesn't have recyclable packaging and you're like, how can you not do that? How can not that not be the biggest priority? And of course you get why, because just imagine, you know, their losses right now, but imagine their losses if they, um, you know, redid all of their packaging for all of their products. But it's like, it would make you feel better about shopping there. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, God, they need some, <laughs> they need some help making people go and shop there. Um yeah, I wanted to ask you um, also about from a marketing perspective. So there's so much noise online now with um, from new brands. Do you you know do you choose TikTok or Clubhouse or Instagram? And you know, are you supposed to have a sort of beefed up LinkedIn profile and people doing PR and podcasts and all these other things? Your background, obviously, from a communications perspective, that was presumably quite an easy. Uh, problem to solve in the early days is a very clear and directive understanding of what you wanted to say and to whom and how you were going to do it for for people and and and, you know correct me if I'm wrong but for people starting now what advice do you have about how do you 
create a hierarchy in terms of which channels, who you're talking to, how you figure out what it is about your business that you want to shout about and, and not just sort of end up doing loads of stuff badly with a sort of intern who's 15. So you've decided they're sort of a social media whiz. Um, that's such a good question. Uh, and my whole background is really old fashioned PR. It's really like take an editor to lunch. Then you get a big, you know, four page piece in Vogue. Then that's your PR. Now, obviously it's completely different. I don't do TikTok or Snap. I do all of our social media now still, which I'm like, when do we get a social media manager? Um, I think it goes back to a beautiful product because if you have a beautiful product, then people want to talk about it. So I think for me, it's not about how to get it out there. It's how to create the most desirable product and the most desirable um, brand. And then people want to talk about it. I also think authenticity, like I have never ever paid anyone or like asked anyone to Instagram anything. And luckily people do. And that goes back to beautiful product that goes back to like authenticity of relationships. So I think when it's not genuine, it does, you can see it. Um, and I'm not talking about brands like Gymshark or brands where it's not about quality. It's about like the sex. That's a different thing. I'm, I'm what I'm selling is a luxury premium aspirational brand. And I think to do that, you need to have amazing quality. You need to have quality of, of, content you need to have quality of people talking about it it needs to be real it needs to be real aspirational people not people with a billion followers on instagram it needs to be um yeah so it's it's not actually that thought out unfortunately because there's only one of me and i'm doing a lot of things but it's more just authentic i feel like right now and eventually we'll need to get to where it's it's more studied and more but then it'll probably lose some of it too because it'll lose my tone of voice and lose some of the authenticity it has now mm. yeah and i guess you're trying to you mentioned earlier that it's you know many people would say it's not a it's not a necessity product um and therefore, from a visual and from a marketing perspective, you want people to see the product naturally in the environment in which they would purchase it. Because if you can fit something inside the behavioral cycle of a customer, it makes it a lot easier for them to purchase it. So in a way, you know, for you as the founder and the ultimate customer, a sort of showcasing of where and how you interact with the product is probably a really good place to start. And I guess a lot of people who are entrepreneurial and start businesses in the same way you have by, you know, sort of stumbling upon something that was problematic to you and going, how is there not a better way to do this? You're really the best person to promote the business. And with that in mind, sometimes advice to young entrepreneurs is that you have to create a business that would run without you. And mm -hmm. I'm interested in your thoughts on that as, as someone who is so integral to vision, mission, value. What is your what is your what are your thoughts about that as an idea that's such a good idea because one investor like this big mega vc said that to me at the beginning that they look for brands that are bigger than the founder and i think about that all the time i just think i want it to be something and i, and I do believe it has a place long after i'm not part of it you know the same way interflora is all over the world and it's bigger than it's not a person it's this it's a bad service all over the world. And I want flower box to be a good service and, and the way to buy flower, buy like beautiful flowers all around the world, mm -hmm. um, which will be bigger than me. What was exciting for me was when we launched in New York and subsequently in LA and the West coast is that, you know, in, in London, it was very much people I knew. It was very much friends of mine. It was very much word of mouth. It was very much relationships. And of course I had some in New York and some in LA, but it sort of took off. I'd sort of look in the back end in 
the morning when I woke up and it was a whole bunch of really amazing people. And I was like, I don't know any of them. And that was such a great feeling that it wasn't people I met at a dinner party or I met, you know, took out to lunch. It was like real customers that were like amazing customers. And then you'd Google like the addresses and it was like, whatever, 150 Central Park West. And you're like, oh, there's no uh, like apartment number because it's like the entire brown, like brownstone on Central Park West. is like $26 million or something. So it was automatically landed with the right people, which was a great feeling for me. Uh, I, it's a really good question because, you know, our marketing team's always like, we should put you in the, like in the social, we should have you in the picture. Like we did a shoot yesterday. They're like, why don't you arrange the flowers? And I'm like, oh my God, that's so daft and so embarrassing and so cringing to me. But I do get that people respond to it. And I do think people identify with having like a female founded brand and identify with me as like this working mom who founded a business. So I do think as much as I, it makes me uncomfortable being the face of, I know you know, it does give a personality and give uh, a person. So it's not just right. interflora. It's, you know, a person who's. Yeah. And customers want that now, right? They want to, they don't want faceless brands. They want to know um, more about the journey and the story and the idea, because that's, you know, businesses have now become brand led rather than just these sort of faceless organizations. So I guess it's an interesting double-edged sword because to be, um, scalable and potentially for an exit for certain businesses you know there has to be a consideration that that business could run without that person and that's the reality of scale but then equally a huge part of the marketing leverage and why you get investment and what you know are the is as a result of the relationships that you have so it i guess it's like very important to grow the brand to a certain point but ultimately what you're creating is a global company that has an infrastructure that runs without you always being yeah. there to, to sort of puppeteer, right? Yeah, I think that's the goal. And I think in the early days, obviously, it's, it's when you're telling the story and people, you know, really getting the story out there that having a person does help. For sure. Um, you, um, yeah. you raised, you raised uh, money, you raised a seed round, and then I think a Series A, is that right? Series a? No, we're doing a Series uh, A right now. Oh, you're doing a series A now, but you did a seed initially to, to, we did a um, seed and then we did a seed plus, I don't know, everyone calls it something different, but we've raised millions of pounds. <laughs> right. But what, was it very obvious to you when you needed that money? You said that you had a couple of contacts who you knew who you wanted to go to as a kind of first sounding board. Can you tell me a little bit more about the process of identifying when you need the money and then what the actual process was of, of going out and getting it? Yeah. Well, so we had like, a pretty good business. It was like eight months in, it was growing. It was obviously it landed the, you know, solution had landed with people. It was growing quite fast. I mean, not like double digit or anything, but it was, it was a sound business already without doing anything. And then it became like, we needed a second van. We had one van. We needed like a more robust, uh, website because I wanted to launch across Europe, all these things that weren't going to cost like money in my savings account. They were going to cost hundreds, you know what I mean? To, to really do it properly. And then Natalie had said to me, she's like, if you ever want to raise money, come to me. And I, at that point found that so embarrassing. I thought it was like the most cringing thing. I felt like I was asking my parents for money or something, but like only now when I speak with young entrepreneurs, I'm like, you're giving them an opportunity to put a little bit of money into it and help you turn it into a lot of money, which is actually like quite amazing. Um, so Natalie, I called her and I was like, look, I was, you know, I know you mentioned it. If you're serious, it was like eight months later. And she's like, I'm dead serious. And she brought Mark Seba in who had been the CEO of net for 17 years was just the 
best, most amazing man. He became our chairman uh, and sadly passed away. Um, and then Carmen Bousquet, who was another early investor in net, and they all came on board. And then, then it was like, they almost closed that first round to just, you know, a few of them, but it was a great, they were great anchors. And they also helped sort of, Mark said to me, Mark Seba said to me, he's like, it's your club. Like, make sure you create a club that other people want to be a part of. And it was such a good piece of advice then, because at that point I was like, I'll take money from anyone uh, mm. who wants to give me money. Cause I didn't realize it was really actually a lifelong relationship or a, a very long relationship. And it's important to take money from people who add value, who also make other people want to be part of it and give credibility to what you're doing. Yeah, it's really good advice. I think that um, it's like, you obviously had a relationship initially that you could speak to as a first port of call, but for a lot of people, they are sort of shopping around. And I think that sometimes, as you say, people forget that the proposition that you're giving to people is, Hey, look, I'm, you know, it might just be a hypothesis or I might have a couple of months under my belt, but I'm committed to this and I'm giving you an opportunity now before it's worth a lot of money to put something in to help me grow. And in turn, you'll have a slice of a much bigger pie. And I think a lot of people go in, you know, nervous about the pitching process. Everyone who's raised money says it's hellish and stressful. And there's a lot of um, decks that need to be made and pitching to different people. And it's almost like speed dating. But actually the confidence of going in and saying, hey, look, it's a really fucking good idea. And you'd be lucky, you know, is, is something sort of important, I think, to encourage people to have that belief. Yeah. And I can say I finally do. I finally like some guy kissed me off last week and I was like, I'll make sure you're sorry. That's what I wrote him back because I, I know that now I have the confidence. I also have the metrics. I also have the numbers to know we're, we're going to win this. And even like now the UK's profit of the London's profitable, the UK will be profitable next quarter. So I know I'm, I, and that was really important to me was to have profitability in sight because I don't want to be one of those companies that just endlessly, endlessly raises to never hit profitability because that's way out of my comfort zone, especially since COVID um, and knowing how scared I felt. I do want to have a profitable business that's still fast growth. So now I'm like, you know what? You're going to be so sorry. Um, yeah. Do you send them flowers afterwards? No. <laughs> I usually do it's part of the process though usually they have received flowers at some point but a lot of times it's men a lot of times they're like yeah that's nice but I don't really get it and you're like why would you get it you're not like remembering your niece's birthday you're not having like organizing when you have people over for dinner you're not remembering you know I even my husband doesn't my husband's amazing um and he's you know, definitely a partner to me and everything, but you know, he doesn't send his mom flowers for mother's day. I do. And that's even before I had flower box. Cause it's like women do those things. Women run the households and that's part of the household. So how would a man, you know, or a room full of men understand the value that it adds to be able to do it quickly online in a convenient way that, you know, is and does not break the bank. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> with great taste. It makes you actually a winner because you sold these great flowers. You sent these great right. flowers. So it's like, you're yeah. that person because you knew to send these great flowers. Yeah, for sure. I'm interested in um, particularly the the last year seems like a, a very obvious contemporary example. But since you started the brand in 2015, have you had moments where you're like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing? Because I think we see on social media these sort of pristine presentations of business owners and founders and particularly female founders, you know, looking very together and kind of like they can do it all. And And for obvious reasons, we don't share all of those slightly more personal, often challenging moments. But during the course of your career, 
with this business. Have there been sleepless nights, you know, tears, high blood pressure? Has that been a reality for you? It's literally been the hardest year of my life um, and the most stressful and the most uncertain and more sleepless nights and more um, anxiety. Uh, the thing is, it's like, I've got to be the one that holds it together. So I think when you're leading a team, you can't fall apart um, because they're looking to you. And especially because they're all like quite young. I think the average age of my team is like probably 26. They're like, is this going to be okay? And you're like, this is going to be okay. I'm going to make this okay. I'm not sure how, but same with at home, you know, with children at home, they're like looking to you to make everything fine. So it's, I think I just had to quell my feelings of anxiety and fear and just like fake it. Um, you know, obviously I fell apart to my husband and, you know, shared all my fears with him. And that's also, so I'm so lucky to have a, you know, a real partner in my marriage. But, um, as far as the rest of the world, you've got to, you've got to make it okay because no one else is going to make it okay. Yeah. With that sort of enduring pressure right like and that's that's part of the responsibility isn't it you've got salaries to pay and and it's certainly in the last year it felt so much bigger than just paying a salary it's like people you're sort of emotionally counseling what probably feels like more children you know if you've got the right culture in a business you care very much for the people that are committed to the company and it it can be quite overwhelming I think sometimes it was really overwhelming. And then also letting, you know, we had to lay um, a handful of people off, like putting people on furlough. It was just such a really, really tough time on so many levels. And it's like in your business plan and your 10 year plan, you're never, no one's ever going to be like, hi, we've just created a scenario map. For if like the world shuts down for a year, we just thought we would workshop that today. You'd yeah. be like, get the fuck out of here. Like, what do you do? You know, it's such a, what it's, it's like so unpredictable as a scenario. Yeah. I mean, I remember one of our investors said, like, I think the biggest existential threat to your business is like sustainability. And that's so key. This is like two or three years ago. And I said to him last year, I was like, do you think the biggest existential threat was that? Like, dude, you were so wrong. Like, yeah, who knew it. what this, like, <laughs> this existential threat was going to just fly right in? I wanted to ask you whether you think success is directly proportional to the sacrifice you're willing to make. You mentioned that in your 20s, you had this crazy and unrelenting commitment to your career, which obviously has continued. But, you know, I think there's, my personal opinion is that there's a lot of negative spin that comes with the idea of these overnight successes on social media and particularly also from reality television, a very unrealistic time frame within which you can build something of value. Do you strongly believe, you know, that there isn't any fast track to success and that it is, digging your heels in and grit and determination that is such a good question i think to create something meaningful and lasting that it takes time and grit and determination and sort of relentless pursuit of like going after a cause and a mission so yes but i do believe that there can be overnight success and maybe maybe i'm old-fashioned where i think that that overnight success of kardashian makeup or gym shark i mean that's amazing and they're tapping into a whole new generation. And maybe that's a whole future way of, of creating a successful business. But I'm more old school in the fact that I do believe it takes really, like, it takes hard work. It takes sacrifice. I mean, I rarely am like, oh, I really feel like doing this right now. So I go do it. I'm constantly doing things I don't want to do. But I think at the end of the day, that's what that's what drives me and makes me feel really happy at the end of the day. You know, and that's what drives success. Yeah, I guess that's, it's really interesting. I think a lot of people on the outside who are looking in, who want to start businesses or have 
a sort of deep burning desire for entrepreneurialism that feel like there's a sort of beginning, middle and end. And actually, you know, for a lot of people that is enduring and the goal is not to sort of get out straight away. It's like, I want to do that process. I want to run the business. I want to grow it and absorb all of it. It's not kind of how quickly can I get out of it? Yeah. And I think the one bit of advice I would say to anyone wanting to start a business is like, be prepared to work harder than you can ever imagine working. I worked hard. I've always worked hard. This is like another level because you're never done. And you know that the the harder you work, the more successful it will be. And there's sort of tangible results to harder work. And you have constant ideas and you're, con- you're never, ever, 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 I don't know about you, but you never switch off. You're never like, okay, I finished that week. That's great. I'm going to go and have a great weekend because on the weekend, I'm like, what can I do next? Or we finish a successful campaign. You know, there's this and that Michael Jordan movie, you know, the reason he was like so amazing and so great is because he's like, yeah, I haven't played my best game yet. And I sort of do feel that the second we have a, a really successful period or a really successful month, I'm like, okay, team, what are we going to do next month? Because we have to keep growing it. I think as an entrepreneur, I don't think I knew how much hard work it would take. I agree with you. It's, it is relentless. And I, I was given some advice by my dad when I started my company. I remember going home and being... I don't know, probably sort of upset and tired and whatever. And he very clearly said to me, you chose this and you should be more tired and more stressed than everyone else because it's your business. And you sort of remember that, you know, not only have you put yourself in that position, but that is part of the snakes and ladders roller coaster that is entrepreneurialism. And like, you you know, you can quit if you want to. Um, so I think, yeah, it's, it's definitely, uh, an important advice to encourage people that the hard work, you know, there's tangible benefits and, and payoff to that, to that level of commitment. Um, tell me what's next for the business. You've got, you know, the world's opening back up again. You've launched globally in a lockdown. What, what can we expect to see for the rest of this year and and beyond? Well, we aren't, um, we don't have full coverage in the US right now. We're just on the East Coast and the West Coast. So we will launch across the US and then really sort of strengthen our foothold in the UK and the US and Europe. And then that's going to, I think, keep us busy for the next couple years to really make it meaningful. Because what I don't want to do is spread ourselves too thin so that we have a nice business in the US, a nice business in the UK. I want to have a killer business in the US, a killer business in the UK, and then it'll be time to go and probably raise more money and go to, you know, Middle East, um, Asia, etc. But for now, I think I've bitten off as much as I can too, which I rarely say, but I, I feel um, like we're, we're I, I feel like we have our hands full. Yeah, I mean, uh, gosh, it sounds it. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I know you're busy. I know you've got a million other things going on. I think you've said you've given some amazing advice and shared some amazing stories about um, the last six years and and your advice. And I think there'll be a lot of people listening to this who will take a lot of comfort in uh, your honesty about what it, what it entails to run a business. So thank you very much. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing you conquer new territories, uh, new spaces and continue to grow the business in the next couple of years. Um, Thank you so much for having me. This was definitely the highlight of my day um, and week, I might say. But um, it's been so nice chatting to you. Thank you so much. And good, good luck to you. I can't wait to actually meet you in person on the other side of this. I know, likewise. Likewise.